1: Brought to you by Belinda Audio. Listen to Belinda audiobooks anywhere, everywhere. Hi, this is Cheryl Arkell for
0: the Better Reading podcast, stories behind the story. We talk to authors about how they came to tell us their story. Lucy Bloom, welcome to Better Reading.
2: Thank you for having me.
0: Now, wow, um, you are a, uh, a, a... A person of energy. I think that's what I'm going to say. You, I mean, even I know this is a podcast and people can't see you, but your appearance is larger than life (laughs) as well. Perfect for a podcast. (laughs) Can I describe how you look? Of course. She's petite. Um, and she's fluorescent at the same time. (laughs) Would that be a good word?
2: <laughs> I guess so, yes. Or luminous. I maybe. have a pink mohawk. Yes. She has
0: a pink mohawk, but she also has uh, pink pom pom earrings, yeah, would they be? They're
2: cute, aren't they? Yeah,
0: Very and pink fluffy. shoes. Um, <laughs> and so she's she's absolutely divine. She is
2: uh, that I am woman. wearing something in between the uh, yeah. earrings and the shoes. Oh yeah, no, just you, to she's clarify. not naked. Yeah, no, <laughs> she's not naked. Um,
0: she is a change maker, exceptional communicator. A social entrepreneur. Wow. She created and led an advertising agency working across a range of industries for twenty years before becoming the CEO of a brand new woman's health organization. And in just two and a half years, she led a small team to raise seven million for a network of Ethiopian hospitals. Wow, that's just, is that all?
2: <laughs> yeah, that was a pretty big deal, that stage of my life. Yeah, yeah. big
0: deal. <laughs> she then transformed a Cambodian children's charity as its first CEO and also created the world's first childbirth education program for men. Lucy is the first and only Australian to be listed as one of the world's top 30 social CEOs, and he's also a newly published author. Is this your first or second book? It's not. Book? It's actually my second book. Your second yeah. book. It's called Get the Girls Out, and that's why she's here today to talk with us. It's a rousing, funny, straight-talking, and inspirational book that's part memoir and part life lessons. Get the Girls Out charts Lucy's, Lucy's extraordinary life and urges us all to reach her recharge our lives and let loose. Now, in terms of recharging, I think you've just recharged me by walking into our office.
2: (laughs) Thank you so much. (laughs) Now,
0: tell me, um, I want to know where it all started. How did you become the, um, the person that you are? So
2: where did you grow up? I was born in Africa. I was, my mum said I was born like a, a wet fish. <laughs> and uh, yeah, we were all born, me and my brothers and sisters were all born in Johannesburg. Right. And we moved to the UK before we settled here because the UK was too cold. So we came here where it was, felt like Africa without the horrid apartheid.
0: Yeah, wow. So you're South African, um, yep. your parents are South African.
2: Yes. Okay, and so how old were you when you came here and where did you come to? By the time we got to Australia, I was eight yeah. and we lived at a place called Paradise Beach. No mm-hmm. joke, that's yeah. where we lived and we did feel yeah. like we had died and gone to heaven. At Paradise we also got, Beach? Yeah. Tell we also us where got, that is. <laughs> it's on the Pitwater. uh Uh, just outside of Sydney. Yeah, it's
0: northern New South Wales. Yeah, Yeah, it's northern Northern Sydney. Yeah, Yeah, northern Northern
2: beaches. beaches. Uh, And we got six months off school, so happy days. It was heaven on a stick.
0: Yeah, (laughs) and you got six months off because you were trying to, to find out where to go and what to do and how to It was to live. just
2: the transition between one country and another and the school term and yeah. the sun shining for the first time in three years because we lived in the UK and it was awful, cold and snowy and so we just made the most of it. And I was only in year two, so mm. happy days. Don't you know I often hear
0: stories of um, migrant stories and, of course, my parents were migrants too. They immigrated um, from Lebanon to Australia uh, with six children. Um, and... That to me just sounds incredibly difficult and incredibly brave.
2: Did you think that of your parents? I think of I think that exactly that of them now. I didn't when I was a kid. It was just all a big adventure and everything was fun and as a as a little kid my parents just excluded me from the difficulty, from the sadness, from all the bravery that they had to pull out of somewhere to move away from their families. We were the only ones out of our family who moved. So they were they were really brave to do that. Two big intercontinental moves, one to the UK, and we literally packed everything. My dad literally packed the lawnmower, everything, and went to the UK, and it just wasn't the right lifestyle for us. It was too indoors. But always, and it was the same with my parents, always with a view for a better life for their children. Very much so, yeah. That was the number one driver, was to get away from apartheid, which was just, it was just too vile to live in. Mm-hmm. And too violent to live in. That, yeah, too violent. Um, mm. I mean, as white people, we stood to benefit from the way it was set up, but it was just a horrible way to live. And, uh, and my brothers were going to have to go to, um, to do compulsory army service. Mm. So uh, that was the big push was my brothers not wanting to have to go to Angola mm. and fight for two years. So that was the main
0: and probably fight for something that they didn't believe in. Yeah, yeah. exactly.
2: So that was an easy decision and my dad um, worked in the diamond mines and is an engineer and oh, right. so was able to sell his business and take a transfer to the UK. Right. Yeah.
0: And when they got here to Paradise Beach <laughs> in the northern beaches, what did they do? What was their, did, Were they able to get work?
2: Yes, my dad... Um, uh, as an engineer, could get work in the locomotive industry. So yeah. anything about choo-choo trains, my dad gets all excited about. And he uh, got, he got a job and then very quickly he set up his own company. And then right. he's been an entrepreneur and self-employed his whole career ever since we got to Australia. And what about your mum? And mum was a school teacher, but she didn't teach full-time again um, mm-hmm. after she had us four kids. Mm-hmm. And she would do English coaching mm-hmm. uh, at home. Okay.
0: Yeah. All right, so you grew up in a pretty, you know, spectacular part of Sydney. Yeah. And talk to me about that.
2: Well, when we first arrived, we landed at Paradise Beach and sometimes I wish we'd stayed there. But yeah. then we moved to the North Shore, the leafy North Shore in Sydney. Yeah. And it probably is a really good place to grow up. Um but I look at it now as an adult and and it's it's not that much fun. Right. <laughs> it's not as much fun as living by the beach anyway. Uh, but we moved to the North Shore and I went to a really well-to-do primary school that I did not fit into very well at all. My mum was the only mum who didn't pick me up in a Mercedes. Oh, that's right. And why. it was that kind it was smack, it was in Wurrunga, it was yeah. smack in um, the middle of a really rich suburb and I just didn't fit in so well there. Then in Year 5 and 6, I moved to Turramurra Public School and I just fitted in there so much better. It was just a, a good old knockabout state school and... I I really enjoyed it there. I loved it.
0: Yeah. That's interesting that I I sometimes, Mm. um, when I think about my primary school day, I didn't think I had choices. I mean, it wasn't bad, but it wasn't great either. But I don't think I would have thought that I wanted to go somewhere else because I didn't think that I would have that choice.
2: Yeah, 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 right. Yes, my parents made those choices for me. Yeah. I didn't want to go to the private girls' school they sent me to, but I didn't feel like I had a choice to say no. To the high school. Yes. So oh. I was the only of the four who went to a private school the whole way through, and I think that's because I was the one that needed the discipline. So where are you in terms of family? I'm the youngest. You're the youngest. youngest of four. Oh, yeah. yeah. no, I can see
3: why Yeah. <laughs> yes. that's right.
2: And I, I was, um, yeah, I was a bit wild. So my parents sort of pumped all they could <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> into Taming me. You. Yes, that's right. And, and they were probably right. Mm. Probably... But you haven't been tamed, not even as an adult. Not been tamed but it was probably the best schooling for me. Mm. All girls, so I couldn't get too distracted and quite a strict school that would keep me under control. (laughs) Oh, so you you think that of it even now? Very much so, but they still let me be really creative. So I was the last student allowed through my school who didn't do maths for the HSC, which is fabulous. It just meant I could choose subjects that I didn't suck at. Yeah. And, and they let me do lots and lots of creative subjects. Yeah. So that's the only, honestly, it's the only reason why I did well in the HSC was I was allowed to choose the subjects I was really good at. You can give the school a plug if you want. Like. <laughs> <laughs> I went to Roseville College. Oh, fantastic. Um, and uh, they just let me do the subject mix yep. that I knew I could do well and that I loved. Okay. And so, where to from there? Then I, um, when I left school, I went and worked as a Gillaroo. Which was a huge amount of fun. So for our international listeners, can you tell us what that is? It's basically a farm hand. So a Jackaroo is a boy and a Jillaroo is a girl and you go and work on a farm and you just do whatever How it takes to run the farm. Was that your mother's idea? No, or... no way. Uh, I knew I wasn't going to be allowed to go to schoolies. Yep. I really wanted to go to schoolies but I didn't even bother asking. There's yeah. no way my folks were going to let me go to the Gold Coast and party hard. <laughs> yeah. Can you explain what schoolies is? Oh, Schoolies is this big celebration... On, in Queensland and when kids finish their final year of school and their final exams, they go for this crazy week of partying. Depending – and you can – what,
0: do Melbourne kids go
2: as well? Is it, is it When I went to school, it was only the Gold Coast – yeah. So, but yeah, everyone, but they, I think their dates are different yes, in Victoria. Okay. So, they So you finish school
0: good. in New South Wales and you travel up the coast any which way, because I know people that have driven that, yeah. that night, you yeah, know, that's it, right.
2: hitchhiked, whatever. But there's no way my folks were going to no. let me go and party like that. No. And a friend of mine wasn't going to be allowed to go either, and her f- extended family owned a property in country Victoria. Right. So, we went there instead. Yeah. And we had we had so much fun, and this is this is the olden days when there was no internet. There wasn't even TV at night. We used to play cards at night. Yeah, and it's hard work. It's hard work. Yeah, yeah. It's it's hard fun work. It would be a really hard career to have. That would be hard work. It's so long physical. term. So tell was, me what a
0: normal day would look like.
2: Uh, jumping on horses. And at what time in the morning would you oh, get no, up? It was actually fabulously not too early. It was oh, just right. a very normal, respectable time. <laughs> time, and we would move cattle around depending on where they needed to be in whatever paddock. We would, um, there were about four days straight where I just had to drive a tractor in a massive spiral and just cut all the hay in this huge paddock and it took four days to do the whole spiral the whole way around wow. and then go around and with the hay baler that would roll the, yeah. the ba- bales. And we built fences and that kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. It was the best. We just like go do that, and then we just go and do it. We had no yeah. idea of the overall management of anything. We just had to feed horses, saddle them up, go and yeah. move that cattle. It was
0: well, pretty... you're at an age where you're doing tasks, really, yeah. aren't you? Yeah. yeah, and it was Fantastic. it was fun,
2: and I could ride anyway. But I, mm-hmm. I became a much better rider. Yeah, and yeah, it was a hoot. <laughs> Okay. So much fun, and so then what then did you do it? I then I started university. So that yeah. was the expected path, you know. I'd gone to a private girls' school. It was an enormous privilege. My poor parents had forked every single cent they could spare to send me there, and then uh, so it was expected that I would go to university, and I did. But I didn't last very long. I only lasted a month doing a and uh, a degree in visual communication. And I just right. after being on the farm, it was just so deathly boring to be sitting in lecture theatres when I could be saddling up a horse and going for a fang. <laughs> and I just wasn't ready for academics Because so really, you're quickly. only 18, 19. Yeah. yeah. So, and I always say in my speeches, um, when I'm Prime Minister, one of my policies will be that kids cannot start university straight after high school. Yeah. They need two years of growing up. Digging holes, having fun. And we can't find enough people to to do primary industry and we beg backpackers to go and pick our grapes because no one wants to do
0: it. <laughs> yeah, but, you know, I think that that's because, too, they stopped the leaving certificate in year 10 and therefore, you know, I mean... Yes, we all need to have a great education, but there are some of those that want to do something more yeah, practical. Do yeah, yeah, do a trade. Yeah, do a trade.
2: And a bit more growing up before yes. you head into that's right. more academic. Being chained to a desk was hard going. Yeah. So I, that's what I needed. Yeah. I needed that break. So you lasted a month. I wow. lasted a month. So I dropped yeah. out of university. And, it and was, that's four weeks. Yeah. <laughs> and luckily, <laughs> thanks for clarifying, <laughs> It's only four weeks. I know. I'm not very patient and I bore easily. Yeah. I know this about myself now.
0: Mm -hmm. Well, I'm trying to captivate you for 30 minutes.
2: We'll see how we go. Uh, Yeah. So I just just couldn't stick with that and I dropped out. I was just so lucky that I just happened to make the decision the day before I would have had to pay all the fees for that semester. So off I went. Yeah. And, I was and really how lucky. did your
0: parents feel about
2: that? I was really surprised that my mum said, "Oh, I'm sick of the whinging. Just just drop out. It's your mm. life." Mm. It was actually the first time my mum had sort of handed my life to me and gone, "It's mm. your life." Mm. And I thought, Ripper. <laughs> so, <laughs> Yay. So I dropped out, and uh, I just sent a bu- I just knew I wanted to work somehow in the media, so wow. I sent a whole stack of letters in the olden days. A- so you really you were in- enrolled in the right course. A VisCom degree was yeah. what I wound up doing running yes. my ad agency, yes. I That's went on right. to study law and then yeah. I finished a fine art degree, yeah, which right. was a bit dumb. Yeah, I should have probably done the VisCom degree rather than fine art, right. but I got through it and yeah. Yeah. good photography skills. I majored in photography, which was a super useful skill to have, mm. and that, that skill actually set me off in amazing directions that graphic design might not have. Mm. Uh, yeah, so I sent out millions of letters looking for work to every radio station, every TV station, just writing really polite letters saying, oh, I really want a job. And one of them came back and said yes, and it was an advertising agency, small agency, and they mainly worked in the cause area. So their clients were World Vision and Salvation Army and Amnesty International, that kind of stuff. So that's where I really learnt my first cause-related marketing. Had you
0: been thinking about... Cause yourself, like, was that something that you thought about? No, you know, how not really. other people lived, and,
2: no, no, not um, not really. At, no. I mean, I remember my HSC major work for art. I spent eighteen months working on a piece that was all about apartheid. I felt really, really strongly mm. about the political situation in South Africa. In the end, the the work I handed in was just a beautiful oil painting of a rusty old car. Mm -hmm. All my, all my thinking and working was something much more political than that. But when it came to my work, I just wanted a job and I wanted it to be fun. Mm -hmm. And that's, that's still, that's still my, Mm. (laughs) my number one uh, factor when I'm looking at something is, is it going to be fun? Um, so I took that job because because it was just the most amazing opportunity. I was only 18 and I was a junior creative and they moved me around the agency and I learnt every aspect of the agency but only for about eight months before right. I had a massive motorcycle accident and that changed everything. Right. Yeah. And talk to me about that. So I was young and dumb and I bought a big black shiny motorcycle against my parents' wishes uh, and I had a massive prang on the Sydney Harbour Bridge on the way to my weekend job in a nightclub.
0: And what were you wearing? Were you wearing protective gear? Yeah, I was in full
2: leathers and, and gloves with, you know, like almost gear. like steel cap gloves, helmet, the works. Um, but my um, gear lever just went straight through my leg and out the other side, nearly whipped my foot off. And did you run? How did you come off? Uh, a gold Mercedes changed lanes very, very fast and didn't look and just took me out. I, just, right. I didn't even see it coming. I was flying through the air, watching the lights of North Sydney swirl before mm. I even knew I'd even had and a And you remember stack. that? Yeah, I remember all of that. I didn't pass out until, I was in, until they actually put me under in theatre, all the way in the city in Sydney Hospital. And t-
0: talk to me about your injuries because they're quite um, serious, aren't they?
2: Yeah, I almost lost my leg. And I broke tib and fib and lots of fingers in my hands and the most horrendous bruising. But most of the injuries really happened after the accident. So, yes, a really bad break yeah. and I lost about an inch of bone. Mm. And um, But that could have all been quite easily put back together, but I got massive infections. So I was losing more and more of my, of my leg every day. Once that was stable, then they had to work out how to fill this big hole in my leg Um, That I'd lost, and that took a lot of surgery, 14 operations. Wow. How long were you in hospital? I was in hospital on and off for a year, a week, and a day. Yeah. I had stints at home, like they'd send me home for Christmas. And talk to me about
0: your memory of how you were feeling that time, because that's debilitating on so many levels, isn't it?
1: Yeah.
2: And for such a long time. It is Mm. the worst year of my life. I've had some shockers, but that one was, (laughs) that one takes the cake. And I I never knew what was going to happen next and it just got worse and worse and worse and next thing I knew they were saying to me, oh, we're going to have to actually sew your legs together. They said that to me. We're going to have to – I still remember the doctor laughing because he was so awkward and uncomfortable with having to explain this procedure to me that the only way to save my right leg was to take the blood supply from my left leg and graft my left leg to my right leg, leave it there for several weeks
3: Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. And the thought
2: just absolutely horrified me. So I actually went into surgery not knowing whether I would lose my leg, whether I'd have the cross-leg surgery, or whether they would do another um, pull bits and pieces, bit out of my back, skin off my thigh and and put it all together in my shin, which I, looking back was never going to work. Mm. So I remember waking up in theatre, no, waking up in recovery and I only had one leg and I remember thinking, oh, they have taken my leg off. I can't believe it. And my mum appeared. My mum always appears <laughs> in the strangest places and there's my mum appears in recovery and I said, Oh mum, they've taken my leg." She said, No, they didn't. They grafted them together and they they had bandaged them together so I just had this one big leg, so it felt like I only had one. But I but I did have two. And, and the cross for leg how surgery did you do? Uh, they grafted my legs together for a month. I was a mermaid for a month. And then they How s- did you get about? Oh you don't. You're you in don't. bed you you are bedridden. Yeah. It's it's yeah. And it worked. Pits. And they actually left my leg. It was initially bandaged, but then they left it open to the air. So it was the most spectacular thing you've ever seen. Anyone who came to visit me really did need a warning that yeah. it, it honestly looked like a steak. Um, How was your mental health during that time? So my mental health wasn't great, but I still had I had really good support. No one was going anywhere. My mum visited me every single day. I actually don't think there was a day she missed. Mm. Um, he used to mothers. Yeah, she's she was just the best. My dad was a bit of a pork chop. He was angry with me for stacking my bike and he, he just needed to have someone to blame and that just was pointless and not helpful at all. And then once it was getting over the initial accident, then it was like, okay, how do we deal with this and how do we, how do we deal with all these challenges that keep coming up? And they weren't too clear with me that how how impossible it was to lose my leg until after I was through the woods. Mm. So I think I really only got through that with my mum, some good close friends. My brother had a girlfriend, Cynthia, and I only met Cynthia when I was in hospital. He brought her to meet me and we became really, really good friends. Oh, it's not a long story. And, um, yeah, she came to visit me and saw me. Oh, we would we, watch like the first Melrose place together and that yeah. sort of stuff in hospital. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. And so um, how, how formative
0: was that? My
2: accident really slowed me down. Yeah. So I think I was living life at a pace that probably wasn't sustainable. And look, most of us probably grow through that and yeah. settle into who they are. I just came down with a thud, and I had to slow down really fast. And it was a whole year before I could, well, more before I could drive a car or get myself anywhere. So I was really reliant on my mum. Yeah, I had a thought there and it's fallen out of my head. So, okay. So how do you pick yourself up and what was the next thing that you did? Oh, yeah. Yeah. to get through that year, I think if I had really just focused on everything that was going wrong, it would have been so much harder and yeah. I would have had to learn how to deal with really serious anxiety. But for some reason, and I, I don't know why this is, maybe it's some of my mum's genes in me, I always push my mind, in, I'd rather push my mind into fantasy land than into exploring what anxiety looks like for me. That is just too scary to go near. So I pushed myself into fantasy land and so much of that time when I was in hospital... I would fantasize about what I would do when I got out of hospital, what my life would look like in future rather than freaking out about my next dressing or my next operation. There were times when I was having dressings every two hours, 24 hours a day, and the trolley up the hall, the sound of those wheels would make me cry before I even knew I was awake because those dressings were so painful. It was such a hideous time. So I just had to have somewhere else to put my brain and I planned all sorts of adventures. I planned a motorcycle trip across America, which I haven't done yet.
0: So you didn't plan never to get on a bike again? No,
2: no, no. And I, and I have ridden a lot. I tend to only ride a motorcycle now when I'm overseas and it's in a country where motorcycles rule the road. So places yeah. like India and Cambodia, yeah. I happily jump on a motorcycle. And I've taken my kids on bikes and stuff, but um, it wouldn't be my chosen transport these Here. days. Yeah. 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 Okay. yeah. <laughs> so that fantasy was uh, a really fabulous way to kill time because this yeah. was pre-internet. I couldn't yeah. just jump on Facebook and stay in touch with my friends. They had to come to hospital and visit me. They had to ring me on a landline yeah. <laughs> to say yeah. hi. So it was really isolating. And so I just made up all these awesome Potential fantasies, and some I did go on to do. One was um, one was to set up my own little ad, ad agency, and I no, really no talk to me about that. Yeah, so that was my next step. Because you were so young when you did that as well. I had to, so I tried to go back to my job. Yeah, at the agency, but it was on three stories in a. High rise building in St. Leonard's. And I, my leg was, my leg was a full time job for a solid three or four years before it was stable enough to go, yes, I can actually have a full time job, let alone travel and the demands of a junior role like that. And so I had to, I had to do my own thing and I had to do something really flexible that I could just grow slowly as I got more and more mobile and, and gradually pain became became less of a feature in my daily life Mm
0: -hmm.
2: and I had really neat handwriting. I always have had really nice handwriting and so I began doing those really beautiful chalkboards in pubs, which is still a hassle because you've still got to get up a ladder but you can hang off a ladder with one leg. (laughs) (laughs) And so that's how I started was doing those beautiful chalkboards in restaurants and pubs and then it just grew from there until I had some nice corporate clients. And now when I look back at my client list over those years, they almost all link back somehow to a client I I managed to swing when I was about 27. So you started that trend? What trend? Chalkboard trend. Oh, I, I don't know whether I started it. I'd certainly seen other people do that kind of work yeah. and I could do that easily because I have beautiful handwriting and I could draw frilly letters. and tomatoes. Because that kind of came into and,
0: to itself. It in just, the 90s. Yes, yeah, that's right.
2: Yeah, I'm yeah. Not sure. I wouldn't say I started it. Mm-hmm. There were definitely others doing it too. Mm-hmm. Okay. And yeah. where to from there? And then it moved into that corporate world. So I was really lucky to pick up a client when I was about 25 I picked up a nice juicy client, which in those days was CSR Timber, mm. and then that business was split into four, and my little agency went with three of those quarters. Oh, fantastic! So, and what
0: kind of work were you doing for them?
2: All sorts. It was mainly print design work, so all their brochureware, all their catalogues, yeah. all their press ads. And then in some of the products where, you know, one of them, a whole bunch of products was bought by Boral. And so Boral yeah. Timber became a major client. And they were a client of mine for 12 mm-hmm. years. So they would send me all over Australia shooting beautiful houses for their timber floors and we, I would style them and yeah. um, make them look all beautiful. So I was a professional cushion fluffer for a long time. <laughs> mm-hmm. and, and being a good photographer really helped. And, mm-hmm. um I think it was when my youngest was born, we set up properly with a, with a, full, digital, um, a full digital kit so we could travel all over Australia and shoot. Yeah. And then what took you from there back to cause? Um, that's a really good question. I call it Chasing Squirrels, which is actually the name of a chapter in my book because so much of my life is spent just a bit bored with what I'm doing right now and then I just see something really interesting and shiny and then it moves and I want to chase it. Mm. <laughs> and and this was one of the first squirrels I, I chased really hard uh, was an organisation in Ethiopia that was treating women with childbirth injuries. And it came across my path when I'd just had my first baby and so I was hormonally disadvantaged to a story where women – are giving birth all by themselves. They're stuck in labor for up to 10 days. Their baby almost always dies, and then they're left with these horrific injuries. And I trained as a doula, which was another squirrel of mine. I trained as a childbirth support person. I'd had one at my birth. I loved it. It was such an interesting thing to do. It's so- always... It's-
0: a concept I'd only ever heard of it in the United States, in California. A friend of mine got one, and it's not a common term here. But over the years, I think everybody needs a doula for going to hospital. Yeah, you're Don't right. You think?
2: Well, you they have them, them in America voice. because yeah. they reduce the cost of interventions. Right. So the health insurers in America know the value of a doula, and right. so they cover the cost of a doula. And Australia Is that right? should, yeah, I Australia should do that. the same thing. Yeah, it's it's more common than you think. Fifteen mm. years ago, it was less common, and and. Um, it was a pretty hippie thing to do, mm. and now it's much more common.
0: Because, for instance, say with even your um, motorbike accident injury, your mother was probably the doula.
2: Yeah, she was. Yeah, yeah and, you, you know, you have death forget. doulas as well who help a family and a person go through that stage of life as well. Mm. So um, you have doulas in lots of parts of your mm, life. It's don't that, you? that person who mm. it's the term means to mother the mother, Mm. And so it's that term to to look after someone who's going through a big stage of life. Mm-hmm. So I love doing that. I love going to a birth and being there when a baby was born. It's a freaking miracle. It was just so amazing to watch. I'm just giving myself goosebumps mm. talking about it. <laughs> it is amazing. It is so amazing. And so I set my doula fees to the same price as an operation in Ethiopia. Right. And that just made me feel fabulous. No one needed to know. The The couples I was supporting didn't need to know what I did with their fees, but I just got the biggest, warmest fuzzies out of supporting this work in Ethiopia. And then fast forward eight years later, I'd been traveling to Ethiopia for eight years, uh, visiting the hospital, shooting the staff, the patients, getting to know the founder really well. And the founder went into a dispute with her then fundraisers. Right. So she asked me to set up a brand-new charitable entity for her work. Yeah. And that was the most – it was the hugest challenge. It was the hardest I've ever worked in my whole life.
0: And meanwhile, back at home, did you have children?
2: Yeah, I had three kids. And and a partner? Yeah, three kids and a husband. Yeah. And he wasn't over the moon about assisting um, the hospital in Ethiopia. Mm -hmm. He probably, rightly so, wanted to focus on our family. Yeah and have a nice, you know, stable, normal life. And I adored the work already there and I'd been there so many times and it seemed like a no-brainer. Like why would you go into a dispute with a little old lady who set this up and loves this work and just wants to focus on the patients rather than the politics? So it seemed like a no-brainer to step in and assist her. It just turned our lives upside down. Yeah. Yeah, thoroughly. Yeah. And no surprises for guessing that I no longer have that husband. Mm-hmm. <laughs>
0: but you've got the three beautiful yeah,
2: children. You can't take those away. <laughs> yeah, my gorgeous kids. They're big now. They're um, 11, 13, and fifteen now. Yeah, yeah, they are big.
0: Yeah. Okay. So tell us, what was your? What, when did your big first corporate job come around?
2: Uh, you mean? Um, give yeah. me context. The, your CEO role. Oh, yeah. So, how did that come around? Well, yeah. um, the the founder of the hospital yeah. asked, "Can you set up this entity, and will you be the CEO?" Yeah. So, I had to create it, um, register See, the charity, I hire I find the astounding team. Everything.
0: Is that that people can do this, yes, of course, but usually you've had experience working in organizations, either be charity or, um, you know, um, any kind of organization, but you pretty much, it's been self-taught the whole way.
2: Yeah, very much so. Except yeah. for that wee little eight eight months exactly. <laughs> in that ad That's agency, right. I worked it out as I went with the clients yeah. that I worked
0: with. Because people that go up the corporate ladder usually go up via you know being a junior, being coordinator, being yeah. this, being that, whatever. But pretty much, you started your own business. You worked really hard, and you were even able to manage a role like that. Yeah, it's then such I was thrown dollars. Just achievement.
2: thank you. I was just thrown in at the deep end. I just had to work it out. Yeah. Although the advertising industry background gave me a really, really good background for running a charity because unless you're actually running the hospital and doing the surgery yourself, you are running a communications company. Mm. If you're running a charity in Australia that funds work elsewhere, you are running a communications company. Mm. Uh, And the only difference is you have the charitable structure which is completely transparent and you have donors instead of customers. It's, it's really similar. So the skills I developed as a creative were put to very good use as a CEO of a charity to make, to take a story that wasn't brilliantly known and make it mainstream and have schools and churches, um, invite me to come and speak to them about these injuries was a huge job.
0: But usually, and this is, this is, um, a generalization, but usually the creatives aren't the management and aren't yeah. the leadership.
2: Well, well, I like true, to, think, isn't it? absolutely. But I like to think that's why we were such a success so fast. Mm. We did everything in house. You had both. Yeah. We did everything in house. We didn't use an agency. Yeah. Um, it, it is a bit unusual for the CEO to yeah. be developing the artwork for the appeal, but I knew exactly <laughs> no, how it needed to be done. And I could write in the founder's voice. And, um, we did a fabulous retail. Um, A retail project that just went gangbusters. So I imported Ethiopian tea and coffee and a few other bits and pieces and then it just sold incredibly well mm. and the retail items would convert to donations. So someone might only buy a $15 bag of coffee but six months later they might make a $25,000 donation and I could track those. Mm. So every time my board, they, they used to call it playing shop. We're worried that you're playing too much shop I go, okay, well, have a look at these figures. And that would always make them go, okay, then. Because <laughs> it now, did exceptionally to, well. Now, we've got to finish up soon. I, and
0: I knew we'd probably go over time. How did it be that you came to write the book? I just want to yeah, get Yeah, it's, it's
2: a fabulous story. <laughs> it's a great
0: title as well. <laughs> Thank get you, the Get the out. Girls Out.
2: I, initially, the working title was Saving the World One Vagina at a Time. Yeah. But funnily enough, HarperCollins wouldn't let me <laughs> put that on a cover. Um, I came to write the book, um, when HarperCollins approached me and said, we've just had a meeting and three people came to our talent acquisition meeting with your name. So we would really like to sign you. But, and it it just landed on such a wild day. I had just been fired from my beloved job, uh, as the CEO of that network of hospitals in Ethiopia. And I was sitting in my car crying into my steering wheel when my phone rang and I didn't recognize the number and I picked it up and it was my publisher at HarperCollins. Mm. So it was a bit wild that she was suggest I would write a book and I said to her, "Look, I don't think you're going to want me to write a book because I'm not a CEO anymore mm. or I won't be for very long at all." And she went, "Oh, yes, we do." <laughs> <laughs> and look, that was 4 years ago now and it has taken me an awfully long time to finish. <coughs> Sorry. Sorry. Um, it's taken me an awful long time to finish this book. Um, because I stopped and started. I've done fabulous projects. You know, I was working in China for, for, uh, on a, a project that was in China for three months and I worked uh, a lot in Cambodia for 13 months that, that was zigzagging between Sydney and Cambodia. And when I was full on busy doing crazy things, I wasn't writing. So I got it properly finished last year. So yeah, here we well, are. well, congratulations. Um, any, just
0: a word of advice to some of our, listeners out there who are feeling maybe a bit despondent with their jobs or their careers or they've just been fired or they've just been retrenched.
2: Well, the best advice someone gave me when uh, I was fired was you ain't nobody till you've been fired. That if you are towing the line so perfectly that you have never been fired, you're actually not shaking anything up. I love that. So that made me feel much better. I was like, yeah, yeah. <laughs> that is great. Yeah. Uh as far as feeling despondent about your job, I guess all I can recommend is to is to read my story and see what's in there for you because there's something different for every single person who leaves through my book. Lucy Bloom,
0: you are an absolute inspiration. Thank you so much for chatting with us today. Thanks for having me.
2: Don't let Washington become your backseat driver. Protect the freedom of driving your way. Visit energycitizens.org. Paid for by the American Petroleum Institute.
0: If you enjoyed this podcast, leave us a review and check out the other podcasts on the Better Reading Network.